Welcome to the Mind Body Breakthroughs Podcast, where we bring you amazing guests on the cutting edge of science, health, and business each week to share strategies you can use to get the breakthrough that you are looking for in your life. I am your host, Chris Donahue, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Nevada Gray. We're so glad that you're joining us today, and we'd like to invite you to join our free private Facebook community, Mind Body Breakthroughs. The Auto Wild Grill is the king of sophistication, bringing that steakhouse feel into the comfort of your own home. Portable, easy to assemble and clean, the Auto Wild Grill packs a big punch in your grilling game. With only three minutes of preheating needed to 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit, you can expect moisture and flavor sealed within a gorgeous steakhouse crust in minutes. The secret is in the Auto Grill's radiant technology, which allows for higher searing temperatures, faster cooking, and juicy steaks. What are you waiting for? Save $300 off the purchase of your grill today. See the show notes for discount link and code. The views expressed on the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast are the opinions of the hosts and guests and are not to be taken as medical advice, as the hosts and guests do not provide medical care. Information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult your medical provider in relation to your personal health and prior to making any changes in your diet or fitness. Dr. Stephen Hussey is a chiropractor and functional medicine practitioner. He attained both his doctorate of chiropractic and master's in human nutrition and functional medicine from the University of Western States in Portland, Oregon. He is the author of two books on health, The Health Evolution, Why Understanding Evolution is the Key to Vibrant Health, and The Heart, Our Most Medically Misunderstood Organ. Dr. Hussey guides clients, or health participants, as he likes to call them, from around the world back to health by using the latest research and health-attaining strategies. In his downtime, he likes to be outdoors, playing sports, reading, writing, and spending time with his wife and their pets. All right, well, we are back with Dr. Stephen Hussey, America's heart coach, continuing our, our heart health series. And today we're going to talk about interesting theories and observations concerning heart attacks. Doc, what do you got for us today? So this is, this is a fun one I, because these are, these are like interesting things that we observe in heart attacks that are, you know, I guess somewhat unexplained, you know, but when we, when we look at them from the, the theory that I have of the majority of heart attacks happening from um, not being fat adapted and um, oxidative stress and autonomic nervous system imbalance, these theories make complete sense if we think about it from from that uh, perspective. So um, I like I like to go through these. And so one of the first ones I like to point out is is that you know everybody's heard someone say this expression like you know if someone uh, is very it gets startled or uh, you know they get the crap scared out of them or whatever they say oh my gosh, you almost gave me a heart attack, you know? And, you know, if we thought about that from the perspective of what, you know, um, we're told causes a heart attack, which is a, a clot um, that that forms and restricts blood flow to an area of the heart, like 
do we really think that getting the crap scared out of you is going to cause a clot that that does that it's like is that the mechanism that happens that i would say no that that's not like that's not what we're thinking but i think subconsciously we say that expression because we know that a heart attack uh is caused by this autonomic nervous system imbalance and if i'm in this imbalance um and i get this sudden surge of adrenaline because someone scares the crap out of me then you say things like oh my gosh you almost gave me a heart attack so i just think that's an interesting thing that people say this is saying the saying that happened um, and I think there's a reason that it happened. It's not just something that we say. Um, but then there's even more interesting, more more science-backed observations that we see. So one of them is that um, uh, historically, women have suffered from heart attacks um, less commonly uh, than men. And they're they're starting to catch up. And I think there's a reason for that, which I'll talk about. But what I first want to talk about is that we see that you know women are are um, get heart attacks less common than men, and we also see that um, women seem to be more protected earlier in life from a heart attack. So they when they do start to get a heart attack, it's usually not till later in life, where men seem to get them earlier in life. And so uh, one thing that we've seen is that a woman's a woman's monthly cycle um, actually um, increases heart rate variability it actually stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. So could it be that the fact that women have a menstrual cycle, it's giving them some protection against, you know, a heart attack from autonomic nervous system imbalance. But then when they hit menopause, they kind of catch up with men as far as the prevalence of heart attacks. Uh, and that's because they're no longer having, having this, this monthly cycle where their, their parasympathetic nervous system is stimulated during that time. I just think that's a very interesting observation and how we can compare that with heart rate variability, which is the best uh, measure for um, uh, autonomic nervous system balance. But the other aspect of this, and the reason I think women are catching up, is I think that men, you know, historically were, you know, like the breadwinners. They were responsible for making the money to provide for the family. And we've talked a lot about how I think that this, this quest for money and it being the one thing that we need to get to attain all the resources we need to survive is very stressful. So not only for you individually, imagine if you were responsible for providing for a whole family, you know, and since that responsibility was has historically been put on men, I think that's why uh, we we have seen um, that that men uh, are more uh, getting heart attacks more um, commonly. But, you know, in the 80s, when this started, women started going into the workforce much more, um, I think. I can't remember exactly, but I feel like I've read somewhere that it's almost like women are now becoming, um, um, it's almost like even as far as the primary breadwinner or the primary moneymaker in the family, women uh, and men are, are pretty equal. So now um, women are, are, are catching up as far as heart attacks go. And I just think we can't really ignore that correlation. Um, so that's the first, th the first one there. Um, another one that's really interesting is that um, heart attacks are obviously more prevalent as we get older uh, or more common as we get older. So why is that? You know, because if these these imbalances that I talk about that cause a heart attack could happen at any age, you could say, I guess. So why are they more prevalent when they're older? Well, we have, um, I have multiple studies that show that as we age, um, that our autonomic or our heart rate variability goes down. Um, no matter what we do, it just goes down. I think there's things we can do to to slow that process, but um, multiple studies that show that in various different ways, whether it's measuring circadian rhythm or directly heart rate variability. Um, and then 
I, I found another study that showed that um, that as we age, our ability, the ability of our uh, myocardial tissue to utilize fatty acids and ketones for fuel goes down as well. This was in mice, though, so it hasn't been tested in humans. But um, just the effect of aging uh, on these mice decreased their ability to use fatty acids and ketones in the heart. Um, so again, that makes sense as well. But I think that the the, the bigger picture philosophical um, uh, idea that this is that heart attacks are more common in the elderly goes back to um, uh, kind of like the purpose of of elders. And so I like to tell a story that I read in uh, in one of Jared Diamond's books, and he he talks about how he went to visit this tribe in the Pacific Islands where he was studying these certain birds of paradise or whatever. And um, they, he learned the story where they were talking about this plant. They said, oh, that, that plant was only eaten after the hingi gingi, is what they called it. And it basically was a hurricane. The hurricane that came, or a monsoon or whatever they call it over there, came through and it wiped out all their crops and all their food supply and, and all the animals left because um, they, they would find a, to find a different uh, area to live in. And so these people were starving, yet they, but they found this one plant, this wild plant, that they lived off of um, um, to get them through to where they could reestablish their crops and animals started to come back. Like it, it, it allowed the tribe to survive. And so they said, we only, we've only been eating that plant since the hingi gingi, since that time happened. And, um, the, and then they also said that later on that um, it happened again. And there was one elder person in the tribe that remembered the previous time that it happened and the plant that they relied on. And so if that elder person hadn't been present, then the tribe wouldn't have known that they could have eaten that plant. And so there was this, um, uh, this idea that, that elder people contributed just as much to the survival of the genes of the tribe because of their wisdom, because of the knowledge they've accumulated. I mean, they live that long in the, in these harsher environments. So you got to think they, they were, they did something right, you know, and so they were able to relay wisdom. And I think that's a, um, a large part of what's um, allowed humans to progress. And so the elders had this purpose, you know, uh, and that was to, you know, A, care for grandchildren um, and then B, relay wisdom um, to to help the, their genes and the genes of the tribe survive. And so we compare that to today. And and this is, you know, all philosophical, but we have studies that show that Elderly people who are um, more isolated or don't have a close friend or a pet or um, or a spouse are way more likely to die of a heart attack. Um, we have studies that show that, and I think that there's this this really interesting time for for elderly people where you know it used to be they used to be so relied on for this knowledge, but now I don't need to go ask my grandma for information. I can just go to the internet and I can find anything that I want. And so I think that. Um, and, and not obviously all, not all elderly people feel this way, but I feel like sometimes they, they feel like they're not, um, contributing to society and to, um, you know, their family as much as they, they have in the past. And I think that creates a sense of isolation. And that's a huge reason that we see, um, increased heart attacks in the elderly. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the elderly, um, um, explanation or interesting observation that we see. Um, another one is um, that it's well known and it's been well documented that heart disease patients, patients who already have heart disease, 
uh, do worse in the winter and die more frequently in the winter. Um, we see this in hospitals and, and among um, uh, cardiac clinics and things like that. Uh, but it has also been very well documented that in the winter, heart rate variability goes down regardless of anything else. When winter happens, heart rate variability goes down. And then when summer happens, it goes up. Um, so that's just another interesting correlation there. Um, let's see some other cool ones uh, that I think uh, talk about in, in, you know, directly what happens in a heart attack. Uh, one is that one thing that we observe or some in, in some heart attacks, we observe that oxygen levels don't change throughout the entire event. Um, so if the theory that a clot restricts blood flow and that blood can't get to the tissue, you'd think you see a drop in oxygen. Um, but that doesn't happen until the actual very end. Uh, and we have studies that show this, uh, the very end of the heart attack when the tissue death actually does occur, obviously, um, the, the oxygen is not there. Um, but it's just interesting to see that, you know, if, if a clot was causing this, you'd think we see drops in oxygen, but since we don't, we've got to have another explanation. And the theory that I have with these three imbalances definitely, uh, explains that observation. Um, another one is that heart attacks, acute myocardial infarction, almost a hundred percent of them happen in the left ventricle. Um, and you know, we have, we have stenosis and, and clots. Um, that form evenly distributed throughout the three main arteries of the heart. So why do we only see um, or, or near, see nearly 100% of acute heart attacks happening in the left ventricle? And the reason is, is that, you know, if people listen to the, the previous episodes, one of the consequences of the heart burning predominantly um, glucose is that um, we get a buildup of lactic acid and hydrogen ions, and that creates swelling which increases pressure in that area. And there, if there's an area of the heart that's already under more pressure, which the left ventricle is, it's more susceptible to pressure changes. And so, you know, when that situation happens, the left ventricle is definitely more affected because of the increased pressure it's already under. Um, which, so, so that kind of explains why we only see them or we see them predominantly in the, the left ventricle. And then lastly, uh, there's a few observations as far as different heart medications. Um, so there's ACE inhibitors and beta blockers, and they have been shown, I mean, they're like more blood pressure medications, um, but they've been shown to also decrease the risk of heart attacks. And it's like, um, and they're, you know, they're thinking, oh, if we lower blood pressure, we're gonna decrease the, um, the amount of uh, pressure in the arteries, which is gonna, you know, uh, decrease the amount of clots forming. But those drugs have also been shown that when you're taking them, they decrease heart rate variability. Not the preferred way that I'd want to do it, but they do have that effect. Um, so maybe that's the protective effect that we see from them. And then the last one, uh, as far as medications goes, is um, nitroglycerin tablets uh, that people take. So nit nitric oxide is the substance that we know dilates the blood vessels. Um, and so the thought is that we give them these nitroglycerin tablets and that dilates the blood vessels uh, so that more blood can get to the area so that the stenosis is not happening. But if people have listened to previous episodes with me, they know that nitric oxide plays a very key role in relaying the parasympathetic, the non-stress signal to the heart cells. So if we're giving someone nitroglycerin tablets, we're supplying them with more nitric oxide that's also... Um, uh, allowing that signal to get relayed into the heart cells, which is switching the metabolism back. So 
you know, they give them nitric glycerol tablets and it and it relieves people's angina. And they think it's because it's dilating the blood vessels and providing more blood to the heart. When really, I think it's giving more nitric oxide, allowing the parasympathetic to go into the heart cells, which is switching the switching the heart back to burning fatty acids. And that's why they're getting relief of angina. Or it could be both mechanisms. I don't know. But I think that um, it's just interesting observations that we see um, with those medications. So those are just the, the kind of list of interesting things uh, that we see that I think my theory helps us make more sense of. I just had a follow-up question uh, regarding the medications because 30 to 40% of prescription drugs are derived from plant compounds, and some of those are actually used to treat cardiac arrhythmias. And there was a study that came out in 2016 by Zhang that actually showed uh, dietary plant lectins, which are plant proteins, can be transported from the gut up the vagus nerve to the brain to change the size and shape of dopamine neurons and have actually been suggested to be a root cause of Parkinson's. Uh, when we look at prion disease of the brain, we have protein malfolding and protein that we really don't know where it came from. And just an observation and some reading I've been doing lately, it's very interesting to look at the dietary component of some of these patients. And I'm just wondering if you've come across anything in the literature where we know that the vagus nerve uh, has a component with the heart, if any of those plant lectins have actually gone to the heart and changed the conduction and the heart rate variability of the heart. Um, in vegetarian diets or vegan diets, is, is there anything that you've come across in the literature um, where the dietary component of a heavy plant-based diet has contributed to disruption in the autonomic nervous system uh, with the heart? I, I haven't seen anything looking at um, heart rate variability in vegetarians or vegans um, showing that it's it's less than say so i mean there's just no studies out there comparing carnivores to vegetarians yet hopefully there will be soon but you know who knows um but a few interesting comments on that though um one is that uh i i've i've kind of thrown this out there before that the the gut and the heart seem i mean all the organs are are innervated by the vagus nerve but the gut and the heart seems to be specifically uh, or more uh, they have more dense innervation. And I think that's the reason why we say things like, I love you with all my heart, or I have a gut feeling about this, you know, because it's, it's really connected to that um, emotional um, connection with it. It has an emotional connection with it. And so I, I think that that's, that's one of the ways that a, a, you know, avoiding all plants in your diet, I think can help um, regulate the vagus nerve and gut healing. There is definitely lots of literature out there showing that gut healing um, will stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system. And so what do we do to gut heal? Well, we don't eat compounds that damage the lining of the gut, and that is lectins uh, and phytic acids and tannins and oxalates and things like that. Those things um, have been shown to damage the lining of the gut, uh, create dysbiosis, which is the imbalance in bacteria in the gut, uh, cause leaky gut, those types of things. And to me, like your body is is reading the environment of your gut as an external environment and almost like as a as an indication of what type of environment you're in and so if it's reading a, a hostile environment uh, or a damaged environment 
then it's going to have a stressful response to that damaged environment. It thinks you're in a hostile environment, so it, it upregulates your stress response. So in that aspect, yes. And then, you know, the the clinical side of that is that when we when we heal the gut, we see a stimulation of parasites. We see balance in the autonomic system. We're telling the body we're safe, and that's what that's what we're after. And those studies that show, and I've seen those studies where they they're showing that the lectins actually travel through the vagus nerve to the brain. And and more interestingly, they when they get to the end, they actually uh, what do they call it? Uh, they call it suicide transport, because when they get to the end, they destroy the nerve ending. So they destroy the communication of the vagus nerve um, uh, to the brain or whatever, wherever it synapses, um, which is just where two nerves connect. And uh, and so, it, it, again, you're almost losing the ability to have that communication between your brain and your gut uh, because these lectins are destroying that. Now, the other interesting thing is that, like you mentioned, medications before, and I don't know that... I don't know this for sure, but I, I don't think that there's going to be many lectins present in medications because when they make the medication, they extract the active ingredient out of it um, and they leave everything else in the plant there. So, I mean, maybe unless the active ingredient is a lectin, I don't know that it's being extracted um, with, the, with the active ingredient. Um, but interestingly, and, you know, it's kind of sad, is that the, the whole story behind medications in general is that, you know, they were kind of the, the field of pharma, pharmacology and pharmaceuticals was kind of pushed forward by, by John Rockefeller because he was this oil tycoon. He had all this oil, right? And he was looking for ways to make money from it, which he's a good businessman for doing this, you know? And so he found that certain petroleum or a certain aspect of petroleum is that he could, he could extract different compounds from plants. And so he could concentrate these compounds of plants that had a physiological effect, and that's where pharmaceuticals were born. Um, so are there traces of petroleum in our medications? Maybe. I, I don't know. That's not something I'd want to be taking. Um, but it, it, that's, that's why he started funding the medical schools and, and saying, okay, I have to teach for the curriculum that pharmaceuticals are the way to go, and that's how we got in this pharmaceutical-based um, medicine that we have is because if they didn't, teach the pharmaceutical theory or pharmaceutical um, approach to medicine, then they lost funding from Rockefeller and his companies. Um, so, yeah, I don't know that there's there's lectins in medications, but um, unless the, the, the active ingredient is actually a lectin. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, I just found that extremely interesting that the plant lectins traveled and affected the dop dopamine nerves and I was also thinking, well, what else could they be affecting if they're still traveling in the vagus nerve to other organs, such as the heart? So I was just mm -hmm. curious if there was any uh, literature with that. But it's, it's definitely something worth being studied uh, because Sally Norton has spoken regarding patients that have had atrial fibrillation uh, due to oxalates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would not be surprised. I mean, that's a whole other like, highway system that we never thought of before. We think of the cardiovascular system and the blood vessels as our transport system, but like clearly things are being transported through nerves. So anything that has a nerve going to it, which is pretty much everything, could be affected. Uh, so it's not, it's not unrealistic to think that that, that is uh, having an effect. And, and you know, I, I have studies that because people think that the, the nervous system communication to the heart is just to the AV node which is the, the component of our nervous system that kind of keeps the pace of the heart. The, um, it tells it when to, to beat. Um, but but it's, been, it's been shown that the nervous system actually 
uh, reaches out and connects to and has a connection to every single aspect, every single heart cell. Um, so, you know, if there are things that travel through nerves and damage tissues, uh, then the heart, the whole heart is definitely going to be affected by that. Doug, this is super interesting. One of the things I appreciated in the beginning is you're looking at some of the truths that underlie these common sayings. You know, you're going to give yourself a heart attack or, oh, you scared me to death. You almost gave me a heart attack. And I do think it is really interesting. Uh, early on in my life, I was an emergency medical technician and rode the ambulance and uh, certainly saw many cases of heart attacks that were brought on by intense emotional trauma, uh, sometimes fear. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it definitely, as you say, kind of goes against this uh, prevalent theory that it's all just about blockages and, and some piece of uh, cholesterol that got lodged somewhere. So, yeah, I wonder if, if you might talk about like kind of those two aspects of fear, uh, kind of intense um, fear, like acutely, and then also worry. What's the effects of worry and long-term daily fear? And how does that affect the heart? I'd say that that the, the long-term worry is what sets us up for potentially catastrophic events due to acute fear. Because I think that we have a nervous system set up to handle acute uh, fear and acute situations where we're supposed to have a stress response and get away from that threat. Like we're designed that way. But it's the it's the it's the the higher thinking ability of humans that we can think ourselves into this like chronic low grade stress response all the time. That's what gets us in trouble, because if we have that and then we have this acute fear response from something, that's when trouble happens. And then, like I said, you know, if, if we have oxidative stress um, that's blocking the, the the nitric oxide or depleting the nitric oxide so that because every time we have this this intense fear response, we're, our heart is also supposed to have a um, uh, not an equal, but a kind of a lesser um, signaling of parasympathetic as well. They're supposed to balance each other out. But if the nitric oxide is not there to relay that to the heart cells, then this acute, you know, um, fear response uh can cause the heart to shift over to burning more um, carbohydrate, which if we're providing plenty of ketones around, that's less likely to happen. Um, but, but yeah, like all these things, it's kind of like the stars have to align, you know? Uh, and, and I think that, you know, we talked a lot about, um, in another podcast, we talked a lot about how uh, civilization can put us into, or the, you know, the demands of our modern day society can put us into this chronic worry state. Um, and I, I would say that the, the chronic worry is more detrimental, uh, more dangerous, um, than the acute fear response. Uh, we're, we're set up to have that acute fear response and, and mammals show that in the wild. They, they're set up to have that. Um, but it's, it's, it's that kind of thing when we've already had this, this a chronic level of, of acute worry or the chronic worry, um, that sets us up for, for, a, a catastrophic event. Well, <clears throat> I think that, uh, you know, all of this just puts everything in an entirely different perspective. And uh, there are so many 
fears that are just completely unfounded and and theories about about heart disease that really don't hold any water but these are the kind of areas that that we need to be focusing on and it is a very empowering message because these are things that we can do things about and there are strategies and ways that we can improve heart rate variability we can lower our stress response we can improve our our outlook and so um you know, what, just uh, for maybe those that are kind of new, what are a few strategies, a few things that people can do that can help with what we've been talking about today? Yeah, so <clears throat> from from an autonomic nervous system balance, uh, imbalance, what things we can do, uh, and I've shared some others on, on different podcasts, but I'll, I'm going to try and get some new ones in here. Um, one, I think, would be um, almost like a, uh, challenge challenge your environment a little bit. Get yourself a little more used to, say, a stress response. So things you can do are, you know, exposure to to heat. So like saunas and sunlight, those types of things. They're kind of like a hormetic uh, response, which means like a almost like a stressful thing. It ends up being more beneficial in the long run. Uh, but the same thing with cold. Uh, you know, whether you do like people do cryotherapy now, but you could just do like, you know, as cold you can stand in the shower, then as warm as you can stand in the shower. Uh, as far as the water goes, uh, and just kind of put your body through those different stress states. That's really good for um, uh, training your parasympathetic. Um, let's see, what are, singing, singing at the top of your lungs. Uh, I, I know people that have like joined a choir or started taking singing lessons just to stimulate their parasympathetic. Um, laughter is another huge one. Uh, laugh as as much and as often as you can. Um, yeah, I, I think that it's sometimes we chuckle to ourselves if we see something like on social media or something like that. But I make it a point to laugh out loud. Uh, I just if I truly think it's funny and it's a genuine laugh, I, I do it out loud. Uh, and let's see. Um, I, I mean, I'll say um, uh, as a chiropractor, I, getting a, an adjustment. Um, I, I um, attended a, a brilliant lecture as far as continuing education goes, uh, about two years ago now, where um, this uh, woman who's a chiropractor and a PhD um, pretty much outlined the exact mechanism by which removing joint dysfunction, which is what a chiropractic adjustment does, um, will will uh, remove stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system and increase parasympathetic. And there's actually a... Um, um, there's another chiropractor who's doing s studies with heart rate variability and has shown early, it's a very uh, small study um, that he's done so far, but he's looking at getting a bigger one done um, that shows that, that chiropractic adjustments do um, increase heart rate variability. Um, so there's another, another good one there. Um, yeah, th those are some, some new ones that we haven't said yet. Well, this was so interesting and Chris and I appreciate it so much, and I know our listeners do. For those of our listeners that are new to you, can you tell us uh, where uh, everyone can find you? Yeah, of course. Uh, my website is resourceyourhealth.com, uh, and I, I, uh, my blog is on there, and my book is on there, and that's where I do my health coaching. So if people want to work with me, uh, they, can, they can find out how to do that through there. Um, and then I'm on social media um, at... Uh, uh, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Stephen Hussey. That's Dr. Stephen Hussey. 
And I also have a YouTube channel, but if you're on Instagram, you're seeing what I'm putting on a YouTube channel too. So uh, one or the other probably work. Awesome. Well, Doc, thank you so much. We appreciate it. And we look forward to the next uh, talk in our series. Yeah, guys. Thanks for having me. We are proud to partner with Blue Blocks, bringing you the most advanced blue blocking lens technology available to combat digital eye strain, poor sleep, and mood. Use the discount link in the show notes and the code CKCOACH. Prove it makes exogenous ketone products a perfect accompaniment to your ketogenic lifestyle to help you to optimize energy levels, sports performance, cognitive function, and more. See the show notes to try some today. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast today, Mind Body Breakthrough. Chris and I truly appreciate each and every one of you. Be sure to subscribe and tell a friend and to join us in our free Mind Body Breakthrough Facebook community where you can start peeling away the layers of everything that's not you so you can be you.